Amen. Thank you, Natalie. Well, good morning. Well, that uh, worship set was tremendous, worship team. Thank you for warming us up on this very cold morning in that. I wanted to ask this question. Do you have any family members or close friends that you would say, boy, they really excel, oftentimes in many different ways, they, they excel at missing the point? And if you don't have any friends or family members that excel in that way, you might be that person, right, that, that misses the point often. I was thinking of our staff team. That oftentimes will bring a subject to be discussed. And I'm not going to name any names, but David and Jedediah often are just all over the place, and it's, it's bringing them back into the point. I think it's sometimes human nature to go off on bunny trails, yes? Every Christmas, I think about this. Every Christmas, I have the capacity to miss the point, yes? Right? When I was young, I used to think it was about gifts, specifically Star Wars, right? And then as I grew up a little bit more, I thought it's about family, yes. And, and in fact, all those things can be good things. But actually, the, the point, slowly and for sure, remember we talked about the, that Advent candle, the, the love of God, the peace, the hope, all those things that represents, that's what the, the incarnation of Christmas is about. And so often it can be lost in the details that at the end of the Advent season we've realized we've, we've missed it. We've missed it. In our walk through the Gospel of John, we are in chapter 2. If you brought your Bibles, would you, would you turn with me? And we're going to see a, a surprising amount of, of anger from Jesus. It's going to be really, it's going to be anger that is like un-Jesus-like coming from Jesus. It's, it's surprising. It kind of, if you slow down and, and read it, it, his anger kind of stops you in your tracks. You go, this is Jesus. And, and we want to locate the reason for his anger. Now, of course, this was happening um, uh, uh, 2,000 years ago. He's just at the start of his ministry, and we're going to see this anger happening. But part of it is he's so angry because the religious leaders of his time were missing the point about a, a central aspect of the faith. And he was angry about it. But I think it would be good for us to ask ourselves this question. Would you, would you ask, as we open up the text, could I be missing the point of some central aspect of the Christian faith, of my faith? Would, would God have a particular message or word or insight or conviction for me, in my heart, whether you're in the sanctuary, whether you're watching um, via live stream, is there an aspect that maybe I'm that person 
Maybe I've been missing the point for quite a long time regarding the Christian faith. And the Lord has a word for me this morning, today in particular. Now, before we read the second half of, the chap- of chapter 2, I want to just recap what we saw. We saw last week in what I thought was a beautiful message by Pastor Jedediah talking about wine, turning water into wine at the wedding. And it was a, a symbol. I, 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 think, I personally think it's so neat that God, Jesus, decided to start his ministry with turning water into wine. And what that says to us and the significance. And and there's, of course, we've talked about John using symbolism a lot and to reflect on what those symbols represent. Do you remember what Jedediah was showing us about what wine represents as a symbol? Joy, favor of God, celebration, right? all the, the, the goodness of God, life in God. There's a, there's a, Jesus would, in another gospel, tell a mini parable, and he would close that parable with this, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. New wine must be poured into new wineskins. If Jesus his message, his life is the new wine that we sang about last week. And what's the new wineskin? Us. Yes, look at your neighbor and say, you're, you're supposed to be the new wineskin. As you, as you take in, see, with every symbol in John, there's at least one significant invitation with those symbols, right? And the symbol of wine, in part, is an invitation that we would be, our lives would be this this wineskin that would, would, we would live differently because of the message of Jesus Christ. Because of his life, our lives would be different. So that's the first part of chapter 2. The second part is going to be really interesting. He's going to use another really significant symbol. See if you guys can recognize, I think you will, uh, of the, the symbol that's there. And I want you to be thinking about the invitation of this symbol. We're going to be in... John chapter 2, starting in verse 13. So he does the, the transformation of the water into wine in Cana. All right. It says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, this is verse 13, Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple courts. He found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords. I remember the first time reading this going, wait, what? Jesus, he made a whip? That doesn't fit my impression of Jesus at all. He made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, 
He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to to prove your authority to do all this? What, What right do you have? Who are you, Jesus? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, the disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Wow, this is such a different feel, this latter part of chapter 2, right? The first part last week was about joy and celebration, and they were at a wedding, and you, you get this picture of Jesus and his disciples participating in this celebration, and in some ways announcing the, the new wine of the gospel, and yet it turns awfully quickly. It turns into this, this, what in the world? I wonder if the disciples are like, well, that was different. Like, I, I expected him to continue to be talking about wine, right? And, and what in the world is Jesus so upset about? I think that's really important if we're going to, apply this to ourselves, we have to understand a little bit, a little bit more deeply about what he, what would cause him to drive out, to scatter, and overturn. To drive out, scatter, and overturn. Well, well, let's understand first and foremost, what's the symbol that uh, Jesus is working with and John inspired is working with. Pretty obvious. The temple. The temple. And what the temple, would you think for a moment about what the temple represents to the people of God, to the first century Jews. The temple was seen as the center of the universe the most important place on the face of the earth. That this temple, not just because it was big and glorious and Herod had been building and still wasn't done and wouldn't be done, and so it was a a huge complex with the Holy of Holies and then the the holy place surrounded that with the Jews worshipped, and then the temple courts, which was the, the Gentiles, they could come and people came from around the world. Jews and Gentiles came around the world to worship the Lord there. That the temple represented the 
presence of God on the face of the earth. The temple represented the eternity, this eternal God, the creator of the universe. This was the place in time and space that he was there, where heaven was on earth, that people could come and worship and pray and commune with the living God. The temple was a really special place, the most special place in the heart of the Jewish people. It represented, in short, the presence of God made manifest to his people. Now, where the story is talking about, the, the courtyard was specifically the Gentiles, the, the non-Jewish people, so the, the Jews could go further into the temple complex and worship and, and do, the according to the laws of Moses, the sacrifices that represented a, a sacrifice of sin, sacrifice of atonement, all those kind of things. But the courtyard were, were for the Gentiles, the, the non-Jews, where they could go. But really what was happening in the, in, in the courtyard was, was they were doing the business of the religion. See, there, people were coming from all around, and so they were, had to exchange the currency to be able to purchase any of the sacrifices there. And there was animals there that, that, that they would be used and, and, and birds there that they would be used for the temple process. And so you can imagine, can you imagine if you had traveled from Colorado Springs to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, but you're not Jewish, so you have to get there to the temple courts and that's your place. And and you've been, you've made, it's been a long journey, and you're weary, and you're tired, and you finally make it to the temple courts, and you see, and you're taken back by the beauty of the temple, and you, and you go there, and then you've got people exchanging money all over the place. You've got animals and, and birds that are being purchased, and and then also the, the courtyard of the temple, that was, it was pretty wide, so it said, this comes out in other gospels in particular, that people, merchants, when they're bringing the merchants into the city of Jerusalem, they would have to, they would have to go around the temple complex. It was really inconvenient. So the courtyard, they could just cut across. So you'd have people running through. You've got the exchange of money. You've got the sale of the, the animals for the sacrifice. And you've got these merchants, these runners running all sorts of merchandise through the temple courts. Might be a difficult place to pray, huh? Jesus comes and sees all of that. He also probably was aware that there was an element of exploitation that was happening. That for the exchange rate for the currencies, they would charge exorbitant rates, or for the sacrifices, they were, it was a, it was a pretty lucrative enterprise. They were making a good amount of money. And if you had traveled from a long distance, boy, I hope you had some wealth to you. It'd be really hard. We begin to understand Jesus 
that it seemed like the whole religious system was missing the point of the temple. What was the point of the temple? It was to commune with God. It was to worship. It was, it was to pray. It was to connect. And Jesus, in a, you'd have to say, a, a righteous anger, starts turning over tables. Starts, it, uh, and I, I am still surprised, like a whip. It's the, it's the weapon we'd have to believe he used it not to, to punish the innocent animals, but to, to, to corral them. Right, But he is filled with anger. The contrast from the wedding is kind of, it, it takes your breath away. I mean, you see joy and anger. Now, there's a few implications, I would say, that this has for us today. Obviously, we don't have a temple like that. But first, before we get to the implications, I want to say a word about, would you hold these two symbols of wine and temple together? As I was holding them, they seem to be in such contrast to one another. But yet, when I started to think about what they represented, the joy and the presence, I thought, oh, goodness, they... They fit together quite nicely. In fact, there's a, a connection all through Scripture that the presence of God is the fullness of joy. Just for example, Psalm 16, you will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. That there is this beauty, this joy, this delight in living a life with the presence of God. There's also further, I think we need to say this for implications for us today as well, is there's no further temple, and Jesus was pointing to himself as the temple, but even with the early disciples, um, there was this idea that there is a new temple, not just Jesus. Most of you might be aware of what this new temple is. Look at your neighbor and say, you're the temple, right? You're the temple. In an incredible way, Paul will talk about this temple in particular both in a, a corporate sense and an individual sense. He says this in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. I think there's a beauty there. I don't think we, we talk about this enough. That part of what the gathering together of God's people is to be and is meant to be where the presence of God rests on the earth. 
that there is this dynamic as we gather together that it's his people connecting with him, that it becomes the courtyard, or, or actually more specifically, Jesus, when he died on the cross, the, the temple dividing the, the, the holy place from the holy of holies was ripped, and so that in this incredible way, as we gather together, we're meant to experience the, the manifest presence of God. I do like going to Orthodox services on occasion, been to a few, but they really play this out tremendously. That from the, the, the beauty of the artwork, from the choir that you can't see, from the, the screen that the priest goes behind, and he does some things that you can't even see, where, where there's mystery, but they're communicating that when God's people gather together, there is this rich presence, or at least there needs to be, should be, a sacredness, a holiness of the presence of God resting in our midst. Paul also applies this personally to us, individually. If your life is meant to be a new temple, if it's meant to be this place of heaven coming to earth, my question is, is what's flowing through that soul of yours? What's the, what's the commerce that's taking place? What's What's running through your soul? What are you thinking about most often? Are you in danger of missing the point of not just our worship service, but the new wineskin, the new life that we're meant to be? What's, what's flowing through your life on a regular basis? That's the invitation of this symbol, I believe. And I'd like to say this, that I think it's easy to miss the point on a regular basis and to recognize that I've got a whole bunch of stuff flowing through my soul and I'm missing the richness of what God is offering. And part of my journey and my faith, my walk with Christ, is trying to say, what's going on on the inside? And how can I transform that to, you could say, a house of prayer, right? The house of prayer it symbols and represent, represents a place of communion with God represents a place where you're in this engagement and conversation with God. But when you've got all sorts of things running through your soul, you're going to miss the point of that communion with God. Let me try and put it this way. There's three things 
that I have sought to do personally and I do on a regular basis that helps me address what's going on in my soul and allow the transformation of God, hopefully, to become a house of prayer, from the house of commerce and the house of prayer. Three things that have helped me. Once, one is this, is looking at my level of zeal or passion or desire. I've included reverence for the things of God and especially for God himself. I like how the New King James Version translates John 2.17. It says this, Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Isn't that interesting translation? It's eaten me up. Right now, now zeal. Paul warns us: zeal can be misplaced, and it and it has to be rooted in good. And yet, don't miss the invitation here. Right, Jesus is modeling; he's teaching us about some of how we're meant to live, and we're meant to live with a zeal and a passion for God Himself and the things of God. That's the invitation. Jesus is modeling even this. This almost like anger, but a, a righteous anger. He's modeling this, this zeal. Now, many of you know that I like the phrase, in all things moderation. I probably said that to my kids, right? In all things moderation, right? Sometimes we have to say, you know what? That's no good. Let's throw that out. Let let's actually look at how Christ said, you know what, no, this is wrong. I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to become zealous for God. I'm going to turn over some tables in my life. I'm going to mix it up. A number of you, I know, right, can, we can get caught in a rut, right, of the faith. Is that easy to do? We can do that. We, we can, we can, this is, yeah, I just don't, there, there's something missing, I, I'm stalled out, I'm wrestling with that. I'm going to try and put a little bit of angst on my words here, because I think Jesus will want me to. I think sometimes just have to shut up about her rut and do something about it. Turn over the table in your life. If you're lacking passion, do something. I have a friend, I'm not going to name names. They're not a part of this church. But it's been years that they've been talking about the struggle, the rut in their lives. And maybe I've been too gentle and too kind and too patient. And maybe I need to say, would you do something about it? Would you, yeah, would you do something? Would you, would you break the rhythms? You also know I like rhythms of faith, right? All that. Maybe you need to break the rhythm. Maybe you have to decide, hey, you know, I'm going to go on a retreat of silence. To some of you, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? Maybe you need to do that. Maybe you need to, to pick up a, an act of service and you need to sacrifice extra to get out of that rut. Maybe you need to give a big financial gift. 
that's going to hurt. Natalie would be rooting for the church, but anything, right? Right? Do something that's going to stop just saying, I, yeah, I'm bored. I'm, I'm struggling. I'm in our, would you turn? I, would it make the point if I turn over some tables or things? I can do, I can do this, and I can do this, and I can. But would you just like, would you do something about it? Or the offering table, I'm going to give No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> that could be sacrilegious, so I'm not going to do that. But listen, would you mix it up? Would you ask yourself, what, what could I do to break? Would I stop making excuses and just keep doing this? So, like, the religious leaders, they could have made excuses. Well, this helps the, this helps the Jewish people. No, just stop it. Turn over something in your life to reflect the zeal of Christ. I don't know what that is in your life. I don't know what that would look like. I've given some things, but is there a way that you could do something just between you and God? And you would just, just say, God, I, gosh, Lord, I, I just want it. My life does not reflect a passion for you, a zeal for you at all. I'm going to go over the top. I'm going to do something that my friends are going to be like, hey, that's a little bit too much. Yeah, it is a little bit too much. But maybe God is inviting you to do that. Another thing I want to talk about is confession. First uh, John 1.19, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, I've been doing, uh, through school, these Ignatian spiritual exercises, and they have an emphasis on confession. It's been rich. I've been convicted that confession and repentance is a gift. It's like we get to experience the grace and forgiveness and the love of God on a regular basis. He just invites us to be real and authentic But as I was preparing this message, I was thinking not so much as sinful things that we confess, but I was thinking of clutter in the soul. Maybe it was because I was imagining the temple courts and all the the clutter of the animals and the money and all of that, the clutter. And I was thinking, what's the clutter in my soul that perhaps I need to do something about. Now, I was going to bring my phone with me, but I forgot it. I left it up in my office. So does anyone have a phone that I could use as a a visual? I'll use yours, Kendra. All right. If you guys have brought your phone, would you get your phone out for just a moment? All right. (laughs) Make sure it's on vibrate, okay? Don't, Don't want to hear. Now, if you had to ask the question, What's the three things that you do most on your phone? I'm guessing, at least for me, it's not talking to people on a phone. It's not a normal phone, right? I would say mine maybe probably isn't even texting people on my phone. A little bit of confession. 
right? Here's what clutters me up. The thing that I do most on my phone is I play cards. Euchre, hearts, double pinochle, right? I throw in a little bit of chess sometime, a little bit of backgammon, right? That's all that. Now, are those things in and of themselves sinful? No, right? Are they, do they clutter up my soul? Absolutely. You know what I do second on it? I look at cars. <laughs> Some of you know me. This is what I do, right? I mean... Because I'm going to need a new car someday. <laughs> and I need to be prepared. Right? So I have five options of what I could go. Right? And then I read news. It's my third. Right? News, especially Chicago sports. Right? Look at all. If you find me, I'm looking on that. Now, are any of those sinful in and of themselves? I guess you could argue that Chicago sports are so bad that they are sinful, but that is beside the point, okay? It's clutter. It's clutter. And when I do these things too much, it really robs that place of prayer. that I've got all these little things, cars, chess, sports, but all these things running through my soul. And here the Lord is inviting me to pray with him, to commune with him, to share my day with him. I've just cluttered all of that up. I think at least there's an invitation here to say, hey, what could I, maybe the radical turning over the table things that you need to do is that you would, you would address the clutter of your own soul and say, you know, Lent is coming up, but maybe we don't need to wait for it. Lent. Maybe you could say, hey, I'm going to address some of this clutter in my soul and really make right here a house of prayer. I'm going to give this back to you, sweetie, just in case. And here's one final thing. <laughs> if you want to go from a house of commerce to a house of prayer, well... Pray more. Yes? But I want to talk about how you pray more. And I, I want to read this parable. You can listen to it. I, I don't have it on the screens, or you can turn. I'm, I'm reading from Luke 11. And Luke 11 is a neat chapter where, where Jesus shares, right? He's praying in a certain place because that was his habit. He would pray. He would commune with the Father. He was the house of prayer. He was the temple of God, as he talked about. Well, he comes back, and, and the disciples say, Lord, would you teach us to pray? And he gives them the Lord's Prayer. You guys know how near and dear the Lord's Prayer is 
to me, but I'm going to read the, the parable after that. So he gives the Lord's Prayer, and then he says, verse 5, suppose you have a friend and you go to him midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose... The one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. That Greek word that is translated, NIV translates shameless audacity, you don't know how many times that is used in, the, uh, in Scripture? Right here. It's the only place that Jesus uses it. It means, uh, it does mean like a, a, a shamelessness, uh, imprudence, uh, a boldness, this audacity, almost it it can imply a a carelessness or an annoyance this, this parable implies, right? Jesus is saying, I want you to pray it like this. Even though your father, your heavenly father is much better than this friend that's asleep, I'm inviting you to pray with Get audacious, get shameless, get annoying in your prayers. See, I really like that because I I do have the spiritual gift of annoyance. (laughs) And so I hear the invitation of turn that to prayer, right? Let me keep reading. So I say to you, ask, this is the famous, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks the door will be opened. That ask, seek, knock makes me think a little bit of the story of drive, scattered, overturned. Ask, seek, knock. Drive, scattered, overturned. He's inviting you. He's inviting you in prayer to knock. Would it be annoying if I did this for the rest of my sermon? Yes? Boy, I would, but my knuckles are just starting to hurt, right? But can you imagine, like, if I were to do that for the rest of the... That would just be so annoying. Would you even be able to pay attention, right? prayers. Let's go after it. Let's shake it up this year. Let's do it. Oh, all right. (laughs) Thank you, Mikey. You're welcome. I'm just going to read a little bit more. 
Which of your fathers, if your son asks you for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Why would Jesus conclude this incredible section of prayer with the Holy Spirit? I'm not 100% sure, honestly, but it's worth asking. But my hunch is this, that what we long for, what we desire, what he's inviting us to get annoying and have some shameless audacity in our prayers, the Holy Spirit is the source of our answered prayer. More of him, more of his life in our lives. And that's when we get to the faith. That's when we get to the, the new wineskin that we started with. That's when this, this life that we break out of the humdrum of a normal life, even a normal Christian life in the United States, I say, we break that out and the Spirit of God fills and anoints and blesses and gives us the longings of our heart because he's placed those longings as I was anointing some people uh, with oil. There was this sense that there was this, uh, this longing of the heart and he was saying, I placed that longing in your life. What's the longing he's placed in your life? And I would guess if you're bored with the faith, if you're caught in a rut, you're missing the true desire of your heart. It's worthy to ask, what is that? I want to invite the, the worship team up. Even though you're going to have to play without music because I tipped over most of the stands. All right. Oh, I forgot to do the stool. I just forgot to do that too, all right? <laughs> Would you pray with me? So would you think of the word invitation? What's the invitation for you that God has for you in this moment? It might be an invitation to passion, to zeal for him, to shake it up, to do something that, that you're asking, God, would you increase my passion and my zeal for you, Lord God? Would you, would you give me something that I can do that just, just churns my soul for you? Might be an invitation to confess. Maybe one of the top three things you do with your phone is something sinful that you know you shouldn't do. 
or maybe it's simply clutter. And he's inviting you this morning to address the clutter of your soul. Or maybe it's simply prayer. That he's just inviting you to maybe create a prayer closet at your home. Maybe it's to attend corporate prayer more often. Maybe it's to go on a prayer retreat. But if we're meant to be a house of prayer, maybe that's the invitation. To just think for a moment on that.